Humanist Take on the World, episode 32. Useful Charts with Matt Baker. Welcome to another episode of Humanist Take on the World. I am Dustin, and joining me is Matt Baker from Useful Charts. Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me. Matt does the Useful Charts YouTube video and physical store selling actual charts, um, covering religious history, religious denominations, medieval royal histories, and just general history, and videos covering all of that. And I have spent way more time than I'm comfortable admitting uh, binging Useful Charts videos. Cool. Matt, it's great to have you on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Looking forward to the chat. Let's start with your PhD dissertation. Sure. So you were a doing a PhD in religious studies, correct? Yep. And decided to do a, a dissertation on the ethics of atheists. Uh, the personality. Personality. Okay. Atheists, yeah. All right. So what was the what was the main question you were trying to answer? Well, I was actually kind of going through my own deconversion experience at the time. So I was interested in what was going on with myself and what was going on with people like me. And I was curious as to why a group of people can grow up in the same church with the same beliefs and then some you know, remain a Christian their whole life. Others eventually find their way out one way or another. Uh, some become hardcore atheists. Some just don't care. Uh, some get into, you know, spiritual stuff. And I'm like, but why? Why, why all these different paths? So I had been looking to do uh, a PhD anyway, something to do with personality. Um, and so I thought, hey, let's, let's look at this. All right. And what was the, how did you go about gathering the data? Yeah, so, so this is where I really lucked out as a grad student, because um, when, basically I was doing a, um, an empirical study, and so as a PhD student, you know, you're looking to get like 300 surveys filled out. If you get 300 surveys filled out, you, you're happy. Um, but I happen to know of a few people kind of in the, in the atheist um, sphere in in the u.s and uh some it got my survey got posted on um Frangia. is that the name of the blog yeah. pz myers mm -hmm. um dg Gro dj growthy actually grew up in the same uh church as me okay um former um podcaster point of inquiry um so he posted it and it went viral <laughs> and I, I i ended up with like 25 thousand whoa 25,000 responses um oh because i think at some point someone posted it on reddit on r slash atheism yeah and it just went crazy it snowballed and so from a research point of view like my um supervisor was just like his jaw dropped like that is a researcher's you know dream come true so we ended up with all this data and and as a grad student like you throw in all these extra questions and you know just in case and so it's like, wow, we have this huge, huge data set. If you're only going for 300 
to get nearly a hundred times that. I know, I know. Um, yeah, it was crazy. So um, I, I had lots and lots of good data to go through. All right. And what were the what were the main conclusions you you were able to come to from that? Yeah. So because your audience uh, is probably um, pretty smart and skeptical and that type of listener, um, I will point out up front um, that one of uh, the measures that we used was something similar to the Myers-Briggs, okay. which instantly people go, oh, the Myers-Briggs, that's just, that's astrology, um, <laughs> which I, I get that point. I get that point, but um, that's a little bit of a oversimplification. Um, basically, um, the Myers-Briggs at the end of the day is kind of a simplified version of the big five personality traits. And the big five personality traits is like the gold standard in personality psychology research. It's, um, you know, lots and lots of evidence to back that up. Um, so the Myers-Briggs is just kind of a, a simplified version. And I decided to go for that because just so many people are familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And it uses um, really um, uh, neutral terms, you know, whereas the big five talks about um, conscientious versus not very conscientious and or agreeable versus not agreeable. And it makes people that are not agreeable seem bad, like the bad guys, whereas, yeah. you know, Myers-Briggs is like thinking or feeling and it's it both seem like a good side. So I thought since we're talking about religion and beliefs and non-beliefs, it would be you know, a little bit nicer not to have all this value laden terms. So, sorry, that was just kind of a, a long winded way to explain why I ended up using um, the Myers Briggs. So, basically, what I did was I got people's Myers Briggs type and then I got information about their religious experience. Um, so, how, how, how did they grow up? Did they go to church? How often did they go to church? Did they go with their mom? Did they go with their dad? All this information. And then, where are you now? Do you still go to church? Are you religious? Do you believe in God? Do you don't believe in God? Do you identify as an atheist, a humanist, a skeptic? What? Um, and what I found was there was a strong correlation. Uh, so if your listeners are familiar with the Myers-Briggs, uh, there's always four letters. Mm -hmm. If you have a T and a P, uh, you're going to be more likely to lean toward uh, atheism, or especially if you grew up in church, leaving church to become an atheist. Okay. Whereas if you have an F and a J, you're much more likely to stay uh, in church and to, to keep believing in God. So that, that was the main yeah. takeaway. One interesting thing in my, one of my theology classes in my undergrad, uh, we did Myers-Briggs, and I was the only one with TJ. Mm. in the class everybody else was fp mm. interesting and the professor made a point that that fps the other two don't matter but fp tend to be the people who are the most likely to be pastors mm. interesting yeah now i i mentioned tp versus fj so you actually end up with two other combinations which aren't in that dichotomy one mm -hmm. uh, well, actually the, the two you mentioned fp versus tj um so in my research they would be somewhere floating in the middle um but there was a really strong correlation with tp on one hand becoming atheist and uh, fj on the other not 
And what's interesting is that actually parallels with research that's been done using the big five. So in big five terms, TP is um, low agreeableness and low conscientiousness, uh, which basically means people think for themselves. Um, so it, it's kind of a no brainer, but it's interesting to actually have the data uh, that backs it up. So, you, so okay, so you got the, the the personality types. Did you find any any other interesting? Uh... Well, the the other thing that I did, and this was just like I say, as a grad student, you're you're putting a survey out there. Oftentimes, your supervisor will like, well, add a few extra questions because you never know what you're going to get. Right. So we threw in all these extra measures and and topics, and one of them was about world views. Um, and this ended up being, I think, one of the more interesting parts mm. of the research project but also the one that some people find controversial. Um, because the first thing I learned when talking to atheists is that there's not one term that everyone likes to use. Some people call themselves atheists. Some people use skeptic, free thinker, uh, brights, uh, humanists, so forth, right? So it's like, can we put all these people in one group or are they all different? And so I did a bunch of research on um, worldview, worldview components, um, ontology, epistemology, all this sort of stuff came up with a basic um, set of questions that could kind of measure a person's worldview mm -hmm. um, on these sorts of things. Um, and then put that measure alongside everything else I did. So in the end, I also got kind of a snapshot of if someone ticks the box, I do not believe in any sort of God or gods, um, I could then compare their results on worldview. Where do they stand in terms of epistemology, in terms of ontology? And most of it's, uh, you know, no brainer. An atheist is is going to have a more naturalistic uh, ontology. They're going to believe in science and reason and this sort of stuff. But um, basically, what I was able to do is show that most people who identify as an atheist are actually what we would call a humanist, which is why mm -hmm. I find <laughs> the name of your podcast interesting, because you've chosen to use the word humanist. Humanist is a little bit more fleshed out, because there are certain humanist organizations that have published manifestos or documents saying, here's what we believe or don't believe. Whereas, um, as you know, in atheist circles, atheists like to say, you know, we're a single issue <laughs> club here. <laughs> uh, all we can say about ourselves is we don't believe in God or gods. Uh, that doesn't tell you anything else about me. Um, but what I found is that's kind of not true, at least in Western countries. Most people who call themselves atheists, actually, you can predict quite a bit about those people uh, in terms of their other beliefs. Um, so, um, I, I published a video about that and, and kind of, you know, talked about different types of terminology that atheists use. And at mm -hmm. the end, you know, I, I kind of pushed that idea that, you know, most atheists in North America, at least, are actually humanists and hold to a humanist worldview. Um, and I argued that because of that, um, in discussions between atheists and theists, um, atheists kind of share the burden of proof because they have to talk about their worldview and defend their worldview from a positive viewpoint instead of just putting it on theists. So that was a, that was a little bit controversial. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because got quite a bit of pushback on that one. A lot of that would depend on who's trying to convince who. Yeah, if the believer is trying to convince the atheist that they need to be a believer, then which is usually the case. Yeah, because there's a lot of believers out there that are evangelistic 
and you know mm -hmm. they want to share the gospel with you they want to convince you whereas most atheists you know they just leave it up to the person i could care less what you believe just don't push it on me you know and in my case you know six months after i, I left the church there could have been an argument starting from christian theology that might have been able to sway me into joining a particular church now seven you know 15 years later uh no that that wouldn't sure it is 17 years later yeah that <laughs> wouldn't work at all uh right. the the starting point is so much lower and for me to try to convince somebody to give up their religion oh yeah there's i like i know the argument or not it wasn't really an argument the discussion i had with my mom when i dropped out of the seminary and she wanted to know what i believe now and right. at that point it was a month out of you know preaching an evangelistic series i i eventually just had to tell her i don't know right um trying to if you had to fill all of that then yes that is a a major burden of proof that you're going to have uh an ethical system to live your life by and way of knowing what's true and not and all of these other things but that's usually not what anybody's ever trying to do in an argument. <laughs> right. Um, I, I guess um, my thinking in doing this was um, to say something to those atheists maybe that are out there, say in the comment sections on Reddit or something, and just trashing people who have religious beliefs that aren't even trying to push it on anyone. Um, and, you know... There are some atheists that push the envelope and say, you know, you're stupid, I'm not. And when they say that, they're basically saying my worldview is better than yours. And yeah. my point is, well, if you're going to say that, you better back it up at a philosophical level and not just deal with the does God exist issue, but with all the various philosophical issues, naturalism versus, um, you know, other ontologies and so forth. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can I can appreciate that. With all that, then, was the conclusion that atheists are generally good people? Yes. Well, no. <laughs> or or at least <laughs> yes not baby no. eating. The, the conclusion was that actually atheists and anyone else are kind of the same. Like on on when it comes to moral stuff, um their worldview might be different in terms of atheists believe that everything that exists is part of the natural world. Whereas theists believe that there's some sort of supernatural, but at the end of the day, when it comes to should we help a poor person or should we care for others or help charities, blah, 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 there's really no difference. So you get awful atheists and you get good atheists. You get awful Christians, let's just say Christians, um, and, you, and you get good Christians. So it, th there's really no differences. Was was kind of the conclusion. All there. right. So you found a whole lot of people who think yes, you should help others, but who don't? Um, <laughs> who generally don't do anything about it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, generally, most people agreed, you know, on standard stuff. I mean, it, I mean, it's hard on on a survey. You ask people, you know, should we help others? Um, most people are going to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, the more tricky ones are, you know, maybe should we tell a lie? You know, there's going to be some people that say, yeah, of course, there's going to be situations where you can tell a lie. But but my research didn't dive too much into that aspect. Um, it was is pretty surface level on that. All right. And uh, what university were you doing this at? 
Uh, this is at Warwick University in the UK. Okay. Uh, so a country that is not all that religious anymore. Uh, right. How well was your, your research received? Pretty well. Like, I'm not sure um, how large of um, an audience it reached. Um, I was able to publish a few aspects of it in some journals. Um, it really wasn't until I got into YouTube that I was able to do a YouTube video about it and then get some feedback. And I think <laughs> generally on both sides of the fence, people, people liked it. They thought it was interesting. All right. And I, I definitely enjoyed it. And that's when I started the email to ask you to come on the podcast. <laughs> oh. All right. So now jumping back to the beginning, then mm -hmm. um, you grew up in the worldwide church of God. Yes, I did from birth. So I was fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist. You were yep. born in Worldwide Church of God, both Millerite movements. Yep. In my many, many years in Adventist schools, third grade on through a year of grad school, uh, the Worldwide Church of God was never, ever mentioned. Right. And in all my years in the Worldwide Church of God, I never heard the word Miller, Millerite. And I, I did know about Seventh-day Adventists because you guys are, are much bigger than, than our church. Um, but I knew very little about the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. E even though we come from a common root. Yeah. So how did, how did that connection, um, how did that connection work? Yeah. So. There was William Miller who said the world was going to end in 1844. Yeah. Obviously, it didn't. Um, and then there were still people that were trying to explain why why didn't Jesus come back? And of course, as an Adventist, you know that there was this idea, well, something did happen in 84, 1844, but it happened in the heaven and all this mm -hmm. sort of stuff. Um, and so then there was this woman, Ellen G. White, who yep. was quite influential. Um, somehow, uh, Sabbatarianism uh, was picked up by a lot of Adventists. And so you had this growing movement of people who were Adventists and also uh, going to church on Saturday. Um, and then you had this controversial, at least somewhat con controversial for some people, Ellen G. White, who was receiving visions and prophecies and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the people who accepted Ellen G. White's teachings grew into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that was the bulk of the people at the time. However, there was a small minority who were Adventists, who went to church on Saturday, but didn't accept Ellen G. White's teachings. Yeah. They're like, no, that, that's not from God. We don't, we don't trust her. They formed their own church called the Church of God Seventh-day. Yep. Um, that was a really, really small church. Actually, they still exist today, but they're yeah. really, really I've small. Seen, I've seen one of their churches and went to high school with somebody who grew up going to that church some. Yeah, like we're talking a couple thousand members, like mm -hmm. worldwide kind of thing. Um, and so Herbert Armstrong, who founded the Worldwide Church of God, was in that church, had a falling out with uh, some okay. leaders, um, and started his own church, which then became the Worldwide Church of God, which became bigger than... The Church of God Seventh Day, but not quite as big as the Seventh Day Adventists. All right, that that absolutely makes sense. Uh, <laughs> the The way it was taught in my 
Adventist church history class at the seminary was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, was that uh, the first split in the Millerite movement was which day of the week to go to church on. That's right. And most went with William Miller on the Sunday side. Yeah. A few went with Bates and White on the Saturday side. Yep. Then Ellen Gould started traveling with James White, and out of convenience, they got married, and he got his publishing business going, writing, publishing her stuff. Yeah. And from my, you could say, jaded understanding of it, James White was driving all of it. Ellen mm. was just the name he put on it because people liked her more than him. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm convinced he was probably quite the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very controlling, probably abusive asshole who got her rubber stamp on everything he wanted people to do. And yeah. in the main Adventist telling of it, most at the point that they started organizing, it even went for Saturday, most didn't stay with the Seventh day Adventist movement. Okay. That it was a, a small minority that then split off, moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, and started the Adventist church. Right. And the rest were the big group that mostly went back to Sunday churches. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about Ellen G. White and her husband, because so many groups, especially weird ones like cults. Um, well, I, I don't know if you consider Seventh-day Adventist a cult. I guess that's a different, um, <laughs> whole different uh, discussion. Um I would actually say probably no on that one, at least not now. I, I um, wouldn't, I would say the Seventh Adventist Church is the most culty mainstream church. Ah. And the Mormon Church is the most mainstream cult. Ah, yeah. I, I, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to say that often in groups you have um, a, a person who's more the figurehead, who's the charismatic person, and then you have someone. Uh, the man behind the cloth, mm -hmm. that kind of Wizard of Oz thing, pulling strings and um, paying bills and yeah. or taking money from other people, <laughs> yeah. whatever they're doing. When the, when the Adventists first incorporated, uh, James didn't even want to be president. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was still running it. He made sure he was in the number two position and he kept ownership of the publishing house. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want to be the president, so he got. Uh, Joseph Bates, his friend, to be the president for a few years, and then James took over until he died. Hmm, interesting. He just didn't live very long after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, so they... they, they the, the main difference, I would say, is they took a lot of the Seventh-day Adventist stuff, yeah, and then he added other things. Like he added British Israelism was probably the biggest thing okay. he added, which was this belief that uh, the white races were somehow the actual descendants of ancient Israel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, crazy. Um, I still run across people today on my YouTube channel trying to convince me of that one. That is, and it's it's. That's less crazy than what Mormons believe. Ah, uh, equally crazy. Well, okay, at least it, it <laughs> makes more sense that the lost tribes of Israel would travel within the Eurasian supercontinent, right? Than sail across the ocean in that's true 
wooden submarines. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my biggest problem with it now as an adult looking at the whole thing, uh, you know, we used to say that um, the tribe of Ephraim was the British Empire and the tribe of Manasseh was the U.S. And I'm thinking, like, how did that work out that, like, all the Ephraimites ended up in Canada, whereas the Manasseh ones ended up in the U.S.? Like, people hmm. groups don't stay together like that. There's intermarriages. There's make Like, the U.S. is not even mostly british like there's no. so much german ancestry and all you know, like it's a melting pot right yeah so the whole thing just doesn't make sense if you know anything at all about genealogy and genetics and history what was the motivation behind it probably to make people feel special i think that's that's what a lot of religion um goes on um it's kind of a tribal thing people want to belong to some sort of group that has special knowledge and they want to feel special and different. Um, Armstrong also played yeah. a lot more on, I think, than the Seventh-day Adventists. You can correct me if, if I'm wrong on like end of the world type stuff, like really scaring people that the world was going to end any day now with fire and brimstone and all this kind of horrible stuff. I went to an Adventist boarding school for the last two years of high school that was built in the 1950s on the assumption that it wouldn't need to survive the decade. Right. Yeah. No, I grew up thinking that. Yeah. I'd never reached junior. I'd never reached high school. Um, but di did you guys push that as much, like with scary imagery and... <laughs> <laughs> the Revelation... our cult certainly did. Revelation like, seminars kinds of stuff. Are, are what Adventists call them, where they, they hide the fact that it's being put on by Adventists. Mm -hmm. They will sometimes host it in an Adventist church. Usually they will have the first... 20 or so sessions of it's almost always 27 sessions the first 20 or so will be in a, a neutral location where it's just the seminar with a special right. guest speaker coming mm -hmm. in from out of town and they use the same stock footage of the you know with the leopard with the wings and mm. the terrifying lion same tactics dragon. that worldwide church of god use yeah. like don't mention church start out like it's just you know a business meeting or something mm -hmm. uh yeah one that the church I was growing up in held, uh, we started at the fairgrounds. Mm. Very, very completely neutral. Mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Crazy tactics. Uh, but oh yeah, the imagery though, it's... It, the Adventist imagery reached its peak in the 80s with the super cartoony, over-the-top, terrifying... Uh, it was definitely the bear was the Soviet Union, right? The lion was the U.S. and like very much like just driving home, uh, Cold War. This is the end. Yeah, yeah. And then they had to take a take uh, take a step back after that. Yeah. Well, this this is where I get into. Uh, sorry, I, I get comments sometimes uh, on my YouTube channel from, from mostly from atheists who who basically, when, whenever I talk about growing up in a cult, they say, well, all religions are a cult, all churches are culty. I'm like, well, you didn't grow up in a cult if you say that. <laughs> because these kind of tactics that we're talking about um, and this, the kind of like way they rope you in slowly and then end up controlling every aspect of your life um, is quite a bit different. I mean, sure. All churches have their problems. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there are some churches out there where people just go and they sing some songs and and they serve it as soup kitchen and and they're done and and the church doesn't really control what they think or what they say or what they wear and all this sort of stuff and say what you will about their beliefs. Um, I think there's a difference um, between a cult and a religion, and I, I think that distinction is important. All right, I am I am revising my take on the Adventist Church. Uh, the most <laughs> mainstream appearing cult. You're 100 percent cult now. I, I'm going 100 percent. Okay. I didn't grow up in it, so I, I I don't know. From third grade on, I went to Adventist schools where they did not teach evolution and push creationism. I spent two years of high school at a boarding school where for we had senior survival and yeah. apocalyptic apocalyptic survival training course in the wilderness which the campus was so remote that Mm. we only had to go five miles away from campus to be in legit wilderness territory right uh i then went to adventist college and then off to an adventist grad school and was that typical for most kids growing up in in the seventh day adventist it's about it's about 50 50 go to adventist schools Mm-hmm. Um, those who complete Adventist high schools, almost all will go on to Adventist colleges. Virtually none stay in the church anymore. All right. <laughs> yeah. So actually it doesn't work in the end. It, it, it worked for a long time. Right. And then the internet happened and it uh, stopped yeah. working. <laughs> yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I've thought about that. You know, because because I got out long before kind of the Internet was a thing. Um, you know, I thought, like, how, how do these people, kids stay in these groups if they have access to the Internet? And can read whatever they want. Yeah. But then again, you, you have to want want to search. So those who search find those who don't don't, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, I'd say in the 90s, the norm was that kids would grow up and they would backslide. and live a secular life and then get knocked up or married and have a kid and then go back to church. I love that you say that word so easily backslide. (laughs) That's such a word that we used in the world. (laughs) But that was the norm. It was kids would go sow their wild oats and then they'd come back to the church. And then since about 2000, they stopped going back to church. Right. Yeah, interesting. I went to my 20-year high school reunion, and it was at Adventist High School. Uh, There was one person who actually attended the church service, part part of the reunion weekend. Uh, He was an atheist, wanted his daughter to see it. And all of us went to an after-party where I had asked about beer and bacon. And so the host uh, did a amazing pulled pork barbecue and opened up his full bar and oh and man is, is pork a, a no no for Seventh Day Adventists? Yes, uh, pork okay. uh, Adventists follow kosher except for the blood stuff. Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses follow the blood stuff and not the rest. Okay, which is weird. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> uh, I, I found that. Adventist eating is closer to halal than than kosher. 
Okay. Uh, Interesting, yeah. Now, with the Worldwide Church of God, I'm not sure if you're familiar in, I guess it was late 80s, early 90s, the church basically fell apart um, because the leadership wanted to go more mainstream. In other words, less culty yeah. and more just run-of-the-mill evangelical. Um, and so you got a bunch of splinter groups that still carried on kind of Herbert Armstrong's way of doing things. Uh, but I think to date, that sort of movement hasn't happened in the Seventh-day Adventists. Not yet. Um, it is possible right now. Mm, yeah, I've, uh, I've heard little things here and there that there, there's some sort of movement someone mentioned. Uh, women's ordination is, is uh, the, the hot topic where ah. the Southern California churches want to ordain women. They have right. been ordaining women for quite a while. And the rest of that's the world. That's so funny because that's often where it starts, and yeah. then before you know it, you're marrying gay people, and <laughs> <laughs> it's all and, downhill from there, guys. Yeah, and and with the the way the Adventist Church is at this point, it's what twenty two, twenty four million people. Mm. Less than a million of those are in the U.S. Right. Yeah. Ninety five percent of the budget comes from the U.S. Right. Uh, half of that budget comes from Southern California. Wow. Yeah. So those Southern California churches have virtually no voting power, but they have all of the money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very typical as well. You know, once you fail in, in Western markets, you take, you take your product somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And with, with the way those numbers have exploded, it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> Uh, but the U.S. and U.S. and Canada are usually counted together to make the U.S. not sure. look quite so bad, and it's been consistently right around a million, give or take a hundred thousand or so since like nineteen seventy. Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, so Worldwide Church of God, they had the big fracture. What's left behind at this point? They um, kept going under the same name, but then eventually they changed themselves to, let me see if I can remember it, Grace Communion International. So there is still okay. a church that exists called Grace Communion International. They're run-of-the-mill evangelicals, um, but from a legal point of view, they're the same organization. And then there's a bunch of little splint splinters that carry on the, the old way. All right. And did, did your, uh, your family stay in? They did, actually. Well, my, my parents, my Your sister parents. and I, um, the two children in my family did not, but my parents still, still go. And did they, they go with the, the mainstream group? The mainstream group. Yeah. At least there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And how did you get out? Uh, it was a long process. Um, so I grew up in the Worldwide Church of God. I was in college when e everything hit the fan and the church was changing toward evangelicalism. So I kind of went that route uh, during my young adult years. Was that an official church college? Uh, yeah, church-run college in Texas. Um, and then I ended up overseas as kind of a missionary, but not a preach the gospel missionary, but like a social justice missionary. Okay. Um, and then while I was overseas, I was overseas for a long time, almost 10 years. And, you know, I, I did a lot of growing up. I was far away from my parents, um, learned about other religions, learned about other worldviews. Um, 
started working on my PhD, started listening to atheist stuff, read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and then just one day realized I don't believe in this stuff anymore. But you, you went to some other churches too in that time. Yeah, period. so in Sri Lanka, like the Worldwide Church of God is so small that uh, they didn't have anything there. So at first I went to a Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God, um, but then slowly like both my um, first wife and I uh, we're kind of on the same path, like, you know, slowly changing our thinking. So then we ended up in a more liberal kind of Anglican church. And that's where I was by the time I was just like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in any of this anymore. Okay. So I took the slow route out. <laughs> <laughs> you did the slow route out of, out of religion. Uh, yeah. I did the quick route out of religion, but slow, also incredibly slow route because I was too deep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I first wanted out freshman year of college, and it mm -hmm. took me another four years past that to <laughs> finally get there. All right. So then, and I think this would be for a first on the podcast. Um, you then converted to Judaism. I did, and um, you know, make let me make it clear that. Um, I converted to kind of a, a liberal form of Judaism. Mm -hmm. You know, in the U.S., we'd call it Reform Judaism, okay. which is quite a bit different from Orthodox Judaism. Oh yeah. Um, I my second wife um, is Jewish, um, although that wasn't really the reason I converted. I actually converted after we were already married. Um, so, uh, do, do you want me to go through the process quickly? Yeah. Or yeah. That's, how, that's fascinating. Yeah. So. So after I, I became an atheist, although I think I was always more comfortable with the term agnostic, um, and that that's kind of where I, where I went. I was very rational. I was very skeptical. I liked to think scientifically about everything. I was into evolution and learning about that. Um, but but I wasn't quite happy, um, kind of with that worldview. I I don't know. I, w I wasn't quite happy. Right. Um, all right, so I, I did an episode a uh, little while ago. It was two episodes yeah. ago on the faith of ascent, which mm. is a, a topic from a, a book by R.C. Sproul that I had to read in the seminary that helped me leave religion, which right. basically covered at some subconscious level, you either can believe there is a God or can't. You can't. I know. Yep. It sounds like you're you have that yeah or at least something tugging inside um and but at, at some point you know this is what i realized i realized that a my main problem was jesus not god <laughs> like my main problem yeah. was all the christian stuff because in christianity you have to believe in jesus like without i mean okay there's some super liberal christians that maybe you know see jesus as some sort of metaphor but generally speaking I mean, Jesus is like, you know, the basic thing for Christians. You got to believe. Yeah. And, and Jesus is historical. I tell people this is the same with Islam. Um, you know, in Islam, there's the Quran. The Quran are the exact literal words coming from Allah. Um, so there's not a whole lot of wiggle room. There's this very historical kind of provable or non-provable. No, not, I shouldn't use the word proof, but we can use the historical method to, to look at these sorts of things, right? Because it happened in mm -hmm. the real world. 
Whereas I came to understand that Judaism, modern Judaism, especially like the progressive forms like Reform Judaism, um, they have so much room for doubt. Like earlier, you said you were in a place where you're like, what do I believe? I don't know. And Jews are like, great. That's what we've been doing for 2000 plus years is we don't know. <laughs> That's I mean, there's the old saying, yeah, ask a Jew, you know, two things and they'll give you three answers. Um, like they love doubt. They love questioning. Um, you don't have to believe in anything specific. Um, so I was like, hey, this is this sounds like home to me because you can struggle with these things and wrestle with these questions, but nobody's going to tell you, you have to believe A, B, C. You know, a lot of people misunderstand. They think that Jews have to believe in a literal Moses and a literal Ten Commandments and all this sort of stuff. But for a lot of Jews these days, and I'm saying, you know, not the Orthodox ones, yeah. but just the average Jew, you know, these things are more stories, traditions, almost like mythology, like, like, someone who might be into Greek mythology or Norse mythology. It's just kind of a, you know, stories that are really, really old, but speak to us at some deep level. And um, the other strange thing is growing up in the worldwide church of God, and I guess maybe you can relate to this a little bit as a Seventh-day Adventist, mm -hmm. there was a lot of Jewishy stuff Yeah, in, in our church. You know, we went to church on Saturday, and I, I kind of liked so, like we made Sabbath special and we used special dishes on for our meal and, you know, it felt special and I like that. And, you know, in the Worldwide Church of God, we actually did some of the Jewish holidays and, and this and that. And I had a lot of fond memories around that sort of stuff. So, I wound up marrying a Jew and I learned that, well, in Judaism, you can actually have a lot of doubt mm -hmm. and they're doing all this stuff that I'm familiar with. So I was like, hey, this is, this is great. <laughs> I can have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that's basically where I'm, where I'm at now. All right. And from what I've, I've seen, like survey wise or whatnot, that it's something like half or a majority of U.S. Jews are, while they may be officially religious, they aren't actually believers. True. Yeah. Quite a, quite a large portion. So, yeah. A, a lot of wiggle room there. On a all lot of, of wiggle room. So yeah, the, the actual Orthodox Jews, you know, who believe everything literally and wear the fancy hat or wig or whatever, you're looking at less than 10% probably. Um, even though that's the image that comes to people's mind and they get all the attention. All right. Quite a few years ago, we did a, a National Day of Reason rally at the Idaho State Capitol. And we invited Rabbi Fink from the synagogue here in Boise. He's a okay. conser conservative Jewish synagogue. And he was very happy to come and uh, speak in favor of reason, rationality, and church-state separation. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was great having him there. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. The, the Christians couldn't get him for National Day of Prayer, but we could. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, see, I, I think it's easier for a Jew to do those sorts of things. Because like I say, in Christianity, um, although there are many Christians who are, are very rational in their thinking and, you know, approach everything with reason, uh, at the end of the day, there's this literal event of God becoming a human through Jesus that 
you kind of can't get rid of. Yeah. Um, whereas Judaism really doesn't have that like thing that like, no, you got to believe this one thing or, or you're not a Jew. Right. Cause the, in the more liberal parts of Judaism, the, the Torah stories would be mythology. Right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or legend maybe is a better word. Myth and legend. And if your stories are myth and legend, and then you've just got the opinions of scholars from there, that's. Yeah. It's basically pretty just pretty loose. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stuff that we can debate about and talk about. And it leads to interesting discussions and, uh, and so forth. Um, and I think, I mean, in life, we're all going to reach out for that some way or another. If we don't get it through religion, we're probably going to get it through comic books or television shows or something. Like, we need mythology in our lives. We need stories that explain things on some different level than a scientific explanation. So, you know, Jews will do that. I mean, obviously, we watch movies and stuff, too. But, you know, we use these old traditions as, you know, stuff that we hang on to and talk, talk about. Whereas, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of atheists out there who, you know, will talk Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or, you know, this or that. Um, and in a way, it's not all too dissimilar in, in my mind. Um, you know, some of the stuff is based on older medieval um, stuff. And it's just stuff that's been with us yeah. for a long time and helps us understand how the world works. Yeah. Uh, before having a kid, uh, my wife and I would go to the local atheist meetup. Well, that's where we met. Oh, nice. And it was amazing how the conversations after, you know, 15 or 20 minutes were about things like Linux and cars and <laughs> sci-fi and <laughs> science and, like, just people talking about stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, atheists, yeah. you'd think, you know, by listening to some podcasts that all atheists like to talk about is science and philosophy, <laughs> logic and all this sort of stuff. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we also need stories and, and fun stuff, too. So and I, I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast, but I remember when I listened to a lot of atheist podcasts, you know, people would talk about that, that. You know, there's there's something missing there that atheists haven't quite created yet in terms of, you know, churches have these nice places where people come and gather and have coffee and donuts and <laughs> and talk. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but so many people who then leave church, there's nothing to fill that void. Yeah, there's there are atheist communities that try to do that. There have been a couple of atheist churches. Um, yeah. Houston and LA both have had them. Um, I think in some cases, podcasts kind of fill a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, I know for me, for before I started podcasting, it, it filled that, that need for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course with the internet, yeah. Social media, um, all these things are kind of replacing um, more old timey um, ways of meeting people. Yeah. And with the stories, it's been one thing that we've done with uh, my wife and I've done with with our daughter is we're trying to 
make sure she learns about a wide variety of people and ideas and cultures, and we're trying to not be dogmatic about really anything. And my yeah. wife loves holidays, doesn't care what they are. She loves yeah. them all. And so my daughter has a couple Hanukkah books. But no, I think it's one Hanukkah book because I think there's only one children's Hanukkah book. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, but she loves that book. It's, it's yeah. uh, Herschel and the... Oh, man. Herschel and the Goblin King. Okay. That might be what it's called. Okay. Weird story, but it's, it's okay. pretty cool. Um, but yeah, lots of myths and legends. And if you look at the, you know, kids movies, most of them are based on really old, you know, very ancient tales. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we definitely do need, uh, need stories. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Um, where can people find more about you? Um, usefulcharts.com. That's kind of the, the one, uh, stop shop. Um, that's where you can find my posters. You can link to the YouTube channel, uh, and go from there. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the interview and, uh, yeah, there'll be another episode out this month. There'll be another interview. So looking forward to that. Sorry about not getting one out last month, but we should be good to go. So you want to contact us you can use the feedback form at htotw.com slash contact or leave us a voicemail message at 208-996-8667 or you can use speakpipe at htotw.com slash speakpipe you can support the show on a monthly basis with patreon or just once with paypal credit debit or Apple Pay, or Google Pay, and the links are available at htotw.com slash donate. Until next time, remember, not all those who wander are lost. <laughs>